0: I guess it's nine thirty-two. We should go ahead and get started. Um, you should have uh, two handouts. One is um, on the confession itself. The second is a new, updated schedule, a teaching schedule. Um, the ones you received last week, my error um, is they—they they were wrong. They were not. Um, the dates um, were one a week behind. But two, on that one, I actually divide I hadn't divided up um everything correctly as far as as you can see, we did uh, for the holy scriptures, almost every chapter that has more than seven paragraphs, I split into two to two different weeks. and so um, except the fall of man, the fall of man, I did just because um, the topic itself um, and then I think the other one is. On religious worship and the Sabbath. I split into two. Um, the first one we will look at um, the confession itself. The second week we will look at the shorter, larger and shorter catechisms specifically um, because that's where they go through the Ten Commandments, um, what each commandment means, how it applies to us, um, and the ramifications of that. And so we're going to give some special attention to that one. So you should have an updated schedule if you need one, Um, Come up here. If you need a handout, I believe the handouts are in the back. Um, And this morning, we are going to be... I had a really hard time preparing for this morning. Because when we talk about of God and of the Holy Trinity, um, there's a lot of different routes that we could go. Um, But something I wrote down here... Oh, by the way, I have... These are my resources that I read... Um, for this morning. Um, this, Confessing the Faith, is a book by Chad Van Dixhorn, the one that we've, most teachers have um, commented. This is just kind of a book on the confession, going chapter by chapter, by a guy that wrote his dissertation on the confession. Um, another really good resource is R.C. Sproul. I think this is actually fairly new. I know he has passed. Yeah, 2019, wrote this, Trues We Confess, a systematic exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, this is worth its weight in gold. Um, it's just a light reading um, joke. just a joke. Um, and then um, Herman Bovink is probably one of my favorite theologians. And so you'll, you'll see down the bottom in the footnotes, um, I reference this book, his Reformed Dogmatics, This is a um, condensed version. This is in one volume. His original Reformed Dogmatics is a four-volume set, each about this thickness. Um, So I reference this one because it's quicker to reference than the other four. Um, And so if you want to look at those, you are more than welcome, but that's what I referenced down in the footnotes um, in the handout Itself, But the reason I say that is because Herman Bavinck, um I have a quote from him to start off in that he says, it is only when we know God as Trinity that we truly know him. And I have a passage, if someone can look up that passage in Exodus 3, 1 through 6, we only know God as Trinity, we only can know God, truly know him, when we know him as Trinity, Now, there is a huge emphasis in the entire Old Testament on the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, I, the Lord your God, am one. That is the picture, the constant repetitive picture that we hear throughout the entire Old Testament. Um, And can someone read Exodus 3, 1 through 6? Exodus 3 gives us one of the first personal introductions of God between Moses. And I think what the Westminster Divines capture as we come to chapter 2 is the holy reverence and awe that we should have as Moses had when we come into the presence of our God. This God, the only living and true God, has revealed himself to us. So this morning, when we approach this God, let us approach him with childlike awe. That he would actually make himself known. We don't know this God because we have smart intellect. We don't know this God because we have conceived of him in such a way that we are projecting him. We only know this God because he has come and revealed himself to us through special revelation. First, through the prophets, or first, through a burning bush that was not consumed, in visions, and in prophecies, and perfectly in Jesus Christ. He came and revealed himself. To his people, the divines began, which is in systematics. So we're we're doing some systematic theology. And if you remember in your in our confession last week, in chapter one, chapter or I always say that in chapter one, paragraph six, this is what our confession says about the holy scriptures. Just in the very first line, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory. Man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. That is systematic theology. That is what systematic theology tries to do. To use necessary consequence may be deduced from what Scripture teaches. The Trinity, the name Trinitas, is not found in your Bible. It was written by um, Tertullian, a second century church father who coined the, coined the term in Latin. It is not found in the Bible, but as you can see in the, on the back of your handout, there are many passages that reference the Trinity and give us great, a great hope of the God who has redeemed us. I'm not going to talk about this back page, but I just gave that to you. And I'm realizing that I had saved a um, PowerPoint that I don't have. But um, um, this God has revealed himself as Trinity, and we are using good and necessary consequences of what the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture reveals about him, and we are succinctly putting it into a doctrine called... Theology proper. When we're talking about God Himself, we are doing what systematicians call theology proper. We are talking about the person of God Himself. We are taking what words that we see throughout the Bible, how God describes Himself, and we are putting them down in succinct order that we might know who that God is. Chapter 2 of the Confession isn't distinct to Reformed theology. What we can read in chapter 2, and I'm getting ready to read um, the first paragraph, um, is what every Christian denomination in the world can profess. It's when we get to the third one that we start to see a little bit of division between the um, Eastern Church and the Western Church. But this is a comprehensive understanding of, Denominationally, that every Catholic, every Protestant, every Baptist, every Church of Christ, every Lutheran, every Presbyterian, these are truths that we can all agree on, that there is one God who has revealed himself in three persons. But, Reformed theology is comprehensively theocentric. God is at the center of every aspect of our theology, and we'll see this as we go through the confession. There is not a chapter on the Holy Spirit himself, but we see the work of the Spirit. We see what the Spirit does in relation to the entire Trinity in almost every single chapter of the Confession. And so we get, to chap- we get to this paragraph one, as God reveals himself in himself. Um, theologically, we call this ad intra, within himself. This is what the um, Westminster divines are trying to describe. So this is um, chapter two, paragraph one. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, and most pure spirit, Invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own will, own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that... Diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. These are all terms, all adjectives, that the Bible uses to describe the God who has revealed himself. The Shorter Catechism asks it this way, what is God? God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There is only one living and true God. Can someone look up Romans 1, 18 to 23? be shy. The Westminster Divine to do something that is not politically correct in our culture. If anyone in today's society would to claim exclusivity, there is only one and true God, and there is no other, they would be outcasts. But that is exactly how our confession begins. There is but one only living and true God. Meaning. All other gods are false. All other gods are false. There are none other. Those who reject this God have been given to the futile thinking and the foolish hearts were darkened. They are being exclusive. There is only one Living and true God is what our the shorter Catechism says. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. This is the most basic, fundamental, and most wicked sorry the most basic, fundamental sin the most wicked, wicked propensity of fallen humanity is to exchange the truth God, the true God, for one that we have made and can control. That's a quote from um, R.C. Sproul in his book. One of the most fundamental sins is that we make idols. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And that is one of the biggest sins of the human existence. What What happened to Adam in the garden? he claimed complete authority over his life as his own and that it wasn't God. God told him not to do something and by rejecting what God told him not to do, he was saying, I know better than God. I have authority over my life. God cannot tell me what to do. I am the sovereign over my own life. There is but one only living, and true God. And then we get into um, the, the parts, the, well, I wouldn't say parts because he doesn't have parts, um, the different adjectives that describe God. And I, I gave, I'm going to go through this really quickly. If you have any questions about these, um, I try to give just kind of simple definitions um, because um, th- they use terms that we don't use anymore, right? Um, Without passions is one of them. So, so, sorry, he is infinite in his being. He is outside of time. There is no ontological boundaries to who God is. He cannot be defined by time. He cannot be defined by space. God's infinities suggest negatively that unlike the creatures, there is in him no limitation. This is why God can be everywhere everywhere always, at all times. He is perfection. He is perfect in everything that he is. Is he holy? He is perfectly holy. Is he love? He is perfect in love. Is he just? He is perfect in his justice. Is he compassionate? He is perfect in his compassion. Everything about him is perfect, without fail. He is most pure, invisible, without body parts. He has nothing that he is composed of. He's a spirit. He's invisible. The reason that God forbid making of an idol is because that, one, he already made an idol of himself when he made man in his image. That's what an idol is. But two, we cannot make an idol of him because he does not consist of physical parts. He is a spirit. If you want, I mean, try to comprehend Jesus, the Son of God. Right? A physical being, a physical human, human being, united perfectly with God himself who has no parts actually incomprehensible. So there you go. That's a free one. Without passions. So um, this, is not, this is probably one of the most confusing um, attributes of God. Um, without passions, we think of passions as being moved by something, as showing compassion, um, as having emotion. And we, we, we hear often in scripture that he is a jealous God, that he is a loving God, that he has these different anthropomorphisms, um, these things that describe humanity that we project onto God. But um, what being without passions means, and this is um, Aristotelian philosophy, he is the unmoved mover. Nothing forces him to be who he is. He is without passions. I, um, I think this is, oh, this is Lethem. He is without passions in the sense that he is not nor can he be subject to the limits of external constraints to which the creation is restricted. He doesn't have, he's he's not a God that has an emotional roller coaster. He's not a God that something happens and that surprises him, and so he reacts to it. He is not reactionary. He knows the beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. He is not changed by something outside of him. Everything he does, he does because he is decreed to do so. He's immutable. While everything changes, God is and remains the same. He is a constant. He is immense. Just as... Is In his infinity, he is not bound by time or space. He is immense is that he is not contained by physical or geographical locations. Wherever he is, he is all there in totality. When we say that God is with us, when we worship as his people, he is here in totality. Imagine that. We don't just get a piece of him. He is here fully, comprehensively, eternally. He is in the presence of his people. Or don't comprehend it. It's, we're, going there, we're going to get there too. He's eternal. There was never a time that he was not. Because of his aseity, um, aseity um, means he's, he's independent, that he doesn't depend on anything, and that's actually, um, no one said this, I, I just made an observation, I think that's what the second paragraph is all about, is his aseity, is that um, he, he is um, perfectly good in himself and is not dependent upon anything. Um, be, and only an eternal being can, can that happen. If you are dependent upon something else, you, you cannot be eternal, right? Because something had to create you, or something had to cause you to come into being. Because he is eternal, he is completely sufficient, existing by his own power. He's incomprehensible, and this is where we kind of get to this, right? Right? <laughs> um, I think that's funny that the, the Westminster Divines put this about right here. Is How do we understand this? We really can't. The only aspects of these attributes, these adjectives that describe God, um, we get because he gives them to us. But we as finite beings, beings can't actually conceive of an infinite, eternal, immense, perfect, without passions, in, without parts, infinite in being God. If you don't believe that he is incomprehensible, try to think of what eternity will look like in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, okay. Well put. Either way, try to think of something that is eternal. We can't do it because we are bound by time. As Calvin says, the finite cannot grasp the infinite. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is providential. Nothing happens outside of his Mighty power. We're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the decrees of God. He is most wise. That doesn't make any sense. God not knows all things. Yeah. Yes, there we go. Not only knows all things, but knows what to do with them. I'm sure that's my mistake and not Sproul's mistake. Um, We can, and we can have knowledge without wisdom. We can know things, but have no wisdom on how best to use them for our own ability. Um. He is most holy. The Bible uses holy to refer to God's otherness, the way in which he is different from us and transcends all creatures, and to refer to his moral perfection. He is most free. Everything derives from God's will. He is reliant upon nothing. We can speak about the future and what we're going to do tomorrow. <laughs> we have a lot of circumstances that can change that, right? I sometimes have, have had parents tell me, well, I promised Jimmy that I'd take him to the pool tomorrow, and if I don't do that, I'll be lying to him. But we also have to know that we are not most free in all of our decisions that if there's a tragedy in the family, we can't go swimming. We have to go serve the family or serve the person that had the tragedy. We're not lying to them because we didn't take them to the pool, but circumstantially, we can't do what we said we're going to do because we are not most free in all of our decisions, right? It's not lying. It's just not being God. We don't have to apologize for not being God or we shouldn't. You want to I mean, it's a different conversation we need to have. he's most absolute. there's nothing greater, higher or better. Thomas Aquinas tried to use or use the ontological was it no that's the teleological argument that it, you can't think of anything better than God, so God must exist um yeah, Descartes. No, what, uh, who was that? Pascal. Pascal tried that. Um, have fun with that. Um, and he works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. This is the topics of chapter 3, 4, and 5. This is what we saw in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Before the foundation of the world, God had planned redemption specifically, all for the praise of His glorious grace. When we next, I have homework printed for you on page. uh, I don't have page numbers online. It's the last page, the front of the last page. Is that one, two, three, four, five? On page five, read the eternal. When we you read chapter three on the eternal decrees. Have Ephesians 1 open and compare the language. Exodus, this is also how, so I I wrote down here, I don't know, yeah, I have it, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. So let's go back and read the last part of this paragraph. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Can someone read Exodus 34, 6-7? I don't know if I have it. Race. I got it. So, what I just read, this is Exodus 34 6 7. If you go to church here, you have heard me read this passage. The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will no, by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Where do you think they got that last sentence? Paragraph 2. God hath life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and upon himself. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom were all things, that's Ephesians, um, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, And to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever he himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. And so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all of his works, in all of his commands. To him is due from angel and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them this is god's aseity he is not contingent he is not dependent on anything when i said this is ephesians what i really meant is this is romans because romans 11:36 says this For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Revelation 4, 8. When John has a vision of Christ on his throne, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and, and full of eyes, all around within in the day and the night, they never cease to say, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is contingent on nothing and no one. That should give us great hope. He can actually do what he promises. He's not like us. All right, I've got to get into the hard stuff and and get through it in five minutes. Third paragraph. So the first two paragraphs are just about God himself. The first one, the first paragraph is ad intra, God within himself. The second is ad extra, how God reveals himself and how he's not dependent upon anything. And the third is how God reveals himself as triune. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceedeth from the Father and the Son. You got it? God is one in essence, three in person. Ontologically, In his being himself, he is the same. There is one God and three persons. All three persons are given the same glory and have all the same attributes. All of the attributes can be given to each person because each person is the same in being. That's what our confession, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism says. How many persons are there? There are three in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. God is one. He, is div- he has one divine essence, one divine being, one divine substance. Yet in his economy, when we speak of God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit, we are speaking of how he relates to himself. So there's the ontological, God is one. With all power and glory, and God is economy, he is three in one. The Father is not begotten. What in the heck does begotten mean? The Father is the personal subsistence of the Godhead from whom the Son is begotten and from whom, with the Son, the Holy Spirit proceeds. Begottenness doesn't mean created. When we say the Son is eternally begotten, it doesn't mean that He was created. But in a very special way, the Father needs needs a Son. To be a Father, there needs to be a Son. For the Son, to be a Son, there needs to be a Father. So, eternally, the second person of the Trinity was begotten by the Father. That's all I'm going to say because I don't really understand it much past that. But it, it is essential that we see that the Father is not begotten and that the Son is eternally begotten. Eternally. There was not a time where the Son was not begotten. This is what Arians believe. They believe that the Son is a created being. There was a time when the Son was not this is why they read John one one through three kind of weird. We we read that the word was with God and the word was God. They reject that, and they I forget what they've done, um, but but they have retranslated the logos into the, into meaning that he was not eternally begotten. So Orthodox Trinitarianism rejects Monarchianism, which believes that there is one person. And maintains that the Son and the Spirit subsist in the divine essence and is not distinct in divine persons. Right. It also rejects modalism, which believes that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are different names for the same ga- God acting in different roles. Um, yeah. If you if you ever hear someone saying the Trinity is like um, water, and it's in in its vapor, in its um, liquid, and in its solid, that is a heresy. That's modalism, that God represents himself in three different modes. If you ever hear someone use an analogy of the um, three-leaf clover, that is a heresy. If you ever hear someone use um, an analogy of he is like a father who is also a son who is also a husband that is a heresy <laughs> do you want to know one that's not a heresy there's not one everyone yes They cannot be in the same state all at once while all three being separate states. We have no analogy to understand the Trinity three in one. All that we have is what Scripture reveals, is that there is one God and no other in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The confession is thoroughly Trinitarian from creation to salvation to consummation. Uh, if you have time, look up the Athanasian um, Creed. Um, I think, I think Athanasius was around 400 AD. It, um, I tried to, I, I thought about putting it in here, but it took three extra pages, and so I didn't. Athanasius um, was around time because. Oh, he was. He was. Yeah, so he would have been late 300s, early 400s. He was after Nicaea. Oh, maybe, maybe your memory serving you better than mine. Um, um, but he, that, that, that entire creed is specifically about the relationship between the persons and the unity between them. And so some practical implications. I, I ripped this straight from the ESV study Bible. I'm telling you guys, if you have an ESV study Bible... Um, these, these things are worth their weight in gold. In the back, they have different articles on doctrine. Um, and in here, they have a section on the Trinity. Um, and so here are some implications. The doctrine of the Trinity makes definitive revelation of God possible as he is known in Christ. We can know God as Savior because he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The Trinity makes atonement possible. We're going to get to some of this when we talk about um, the humanity and divinity of Christ. But Christ, Jesus Christ must have been God or his atonement wouldn't have been powerful enough to cover all humanity. But he also had to be man because God can't represent man as his substitute. Only a man can represent a man as a substitute. We can only know full atonement because of of Christ. Um, And I'm at 1013, and so you guys can read the rest. I do have some homework, as I said. Um, Read chapter 3 of the Confession, Um, Westminster Larger Catechism 12 through 14, Westminster Shorter Catechism 7 through 8. And if you want extra credit, Look online and find the Canons of Dort. Um, Yep, yep. Um, um, If you read the Canons of Dort, um, you will know everything that I'm going to say next week because I'm going to teach basically the the Canons of Dort. I talked about the Canons of Dort last, or the first week. It was right before the confession was written, um, and there were actually... um, people sent from England as delegates to the canon of Dort. It, it's probably about a 30-minute read, maybe an hour read. Um, um, but it, if, if you want to know where five points of Calvinism came from, it's the canons of Dort. They're, they're ripped off from the canons of Dort. Um, and so that's going to be your extra credit um, as we talk about the eternal decrees which I'll be teaching next week also. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask for questions. If you have questions, come talk to me. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, the one and only living and true God, and that you have loved us so much that you have offered us redemption in yourself through Christ by your Spirit. Father, may we hold this and celebrate this, and may we return everything we have for the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you.